Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. My name is Kendall. My name is Esther. I'm Leah. And I'm Susan. My name is Emra. Today, we are joined with Emra, who is an immigration lawyer. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Of course. Thank you, Kendall. Uh, So I'm a lifelong resident of New York, uh, more specifically Long Island. And uh, I went to New York University for my undergraduate degree. I went to Albany Law School for my Juris Doctor. Uh, I've been practicing for approximately 22 years now. And uh, my experience is is rather broad. Uh, I was a prosecutor uh, out of law school in Suffolk County. Uh, I did that for approximately six to seven years and uh, focusing mostly on white collar crimes. Uh, so that, that experience obviously was very insightful, uh, being able to prosecute cases in court and uh, investigations and things of that nature. Uh, my practice currently uh, is, uh, I'd say a general practice, but, but I focus on two areas mainly. Uh, one is criminal defense and the other is uh, immigration. I'll say this, immigration is a very broad uh, practice area, uh, so there are actually uh, a litany of areas that you can focus on as a practitioner. Uh, what I focus on specifically is um, business-related visas, uh, investment opportunities for foreigners uh, in order to um, either get their green card or a visa to allow them to come to the United States. Thank you for sharing. Um, was there a certain event that made you want to become an immigration lawyer? Nothing specific that jumps out. Um, I know Uh, My upbringing, I'm a first-generation Turkish-American, so growing up at home, uh, obviously, my perspective was a little different uh, than most. Uh, One of the funnier stories I I always think about um, when I started uh, my formal education here, I mean, I was born here, but when I started school formally, um, I actually couldn't speak English quite so well uh, because my parents spoke Turkish at home. (laughs) So uh, I don't know if they had ESL classes when I was back in school, but I remember I I was taking extra classes that my other classmates weren't taking. And uh, so it was kind of a unique uh, experience. Uh, In hindsight, it was a great experience Uh, at the time, obviously a little traumatic because you don't understand as a kid why you're different than everybody else and why do I have to take all these extra classes Uh, but that always stuck with me Um, you know being a first generation uh, American is very uh, unique in the sense that um, you know your your feet are in two different worlds right Uh, one one foot is here and one foot is in my parents native country Uh, so everything was always kind of uh, the perspective was always from both worlds Uh, so I always appreciated that. Uh, And I think it was just a natural progression uh, to focus, at least partially, uh, in my practice on immigration uh, cases. Uh, And, you know, it's it's also fulfilling to be able to help people, right? Uh, If you can uh, allow somebody to fulfill a dream to come here, uh, what's better than that? And what's more satisfying than that? I think that's really interesting, Emma, because it gives you such a unique perspective. Uh, So many folks go into a profession uh, because they want to help people, but they may not have, uh, you know, there's that line between I have compassion and also I have a deeper understanding of what people might be going through because you've experienced it, you know, with your parents. Um, and I imagine it's, it also probably adds to the frustration sometimes because you're kind of behind the scenes 
uh, you you kind of have a different type of understanding. Um, I guess what I would ask on the flip side too is when you work with people, do you think that they, because you are a first generation, you obviously have this perspective and language and et cetera, but there's also a boundary there. You yourself um, sure. did not really have that experience. Do you think that people make assumptions based on the fact that you're um, a first generation um, or that they, you know, they understand your background. So they'll make assumptions about who you are, maybe what you bring to the table. Uh, I think that certainly happens, um, particularly uh, with the Turkish community, uh, because there's a natural affinity because I speak the language and, and I know the culture. And sometimes there's unrealistic expectations, right, as a result of that. Uh, which makes it challenging. Uh, and, and I find, you know, th there's always a balance, right? Uh, obviously, um, you know, I have to find kind of a, a happy medium for myself professionally uh, and personally, right? So the personal gratification, obviously, is really important. You, you want to be able to tell people and, and, and do the right thing. But then you're balancing that against running your business, right? And, and, and finding that happy medium where, Obviously, there's uh, obligations on that front as well. Uh, so, so I always find it's challenging, and um, you know, clients, um, you know, obviously, to the client, their particular case is the most important case in the world, right? Because that's that's their focus, and and, and that's what's driving them to come to you. Uh, and it's very important. I'm always cognizant of trying to not lose sight of that, because. You know, they have one case, but, you know, I have countless cases sitting on my desk. And, and how do you manage all of those expectations of all of those people and, and you know, all of the personality traits and, and character quirks, right? There's always this juggling act. And uh, so it makes it uh, difficult. Um, you know, there are moments, obviously, where I get frustrated. Uh, but then all it takes is, you know, one positive experience, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, you forget all the negative, And this is why we do what we do. And, and, uh, and, and it could be something as simple as a thank you. That's all it takes from a client. Thank you so much for a text message. Thank you so much. Uh, and then it kind of recharges you a little bit and, and refreshes you and refocuses you. I think that's really interesting because you brought up the point where when you said that you yourself are a first generation Amer American and for me that really resonates with me also because my parents were also immigrants and I myself my first language was Korean and I had to go to preschool and you know kind of immerse myself into the culture and speak English all of a sudden and I was just wondering on to the listeners as well how do you think that colonialism um, shapes U.S. immigration policies? Can you go into the depth of the different types of, you know, what happened in our history that, you know, is changing our U.S. immigration policies? Sure. Um, I mean, I've done a lot of reading and a lot of thinking about this, and I think um, there's also been an evolution in my thought process. Uh, as you get older and wiser, uh, you see things differently. Uh, I, I think specifically as far as our immigration policy, um, you know, the, the colonialism, uh, the, the nature of how our country was founded, uh, and more specifically, the, the nature of how this country treats uh, its indigenous people and other, uh, I'll call them non-Western European individuals, right? So anybody who doesn't look Western European, uh, 
clearly uh, the policies of this country from day one since its inception. Um, you know, there's a stark, stark contrast how Caucasians get treated, uh, Western European Caucasians versus everybody else. Uh, and, and it's sometimes a difficult subject to discuss because, you know, people, I think, naturally don't want to believe that, you know, America, the, this beacon of hope and, and um, this light on the hill, if you will, for, for the rest of the world uh, would be capable of something like that. Uh, but I think the driving force uh, for many of our policies uh, comes back to you know, this colonialism nature, uh, it's in our DNA. I, I don't think we can get away from it. Uh, so uh, everything we do is designed to ensure that, uh, you know, the, the, the white privilege uh, continues. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is structural. Um, and, you know, I think this is the, the issue that really has to be kind of fleshed out because, no, no politician is going to stand up in, in the middle of the House floor and, and say these things uh, because they, they're worried about getting reelected, right? And, and they're catering to their uh, most extreme base. Um, so, you know, I think in order to really understand and recognize why our system doesn't work, um, we have to accept the fact and acknowledge the fact uh, that. Uh, this colonialism um, is congenital. Uh, it's a part of who we are. Uh, and until we recognize that and try to address it, uh, nothing will change. I had a question sort of related to what you're talking about, because that's what I've been like reading about and thinking about, which is that we tend to, tend to be very accepting of people that fly into our airports and come from predominantly, you know, white countries. And yet, we um, we want the the cheap labor of people coming from Guatemala and from you know El Salvador and you know from Mexico and Costa Rica, so we want the labor, but we don't want the immigrants. You know, we don't want these people coming here. And migration, you know, from these countries is very much caused by war and by drugs and by leaders that we propped up. You know, as U.S. you know policy, and so. My question is, I mean, from all the way back to JFK, who called us a nation of immigrants, and yet mm -hmm. we hate immigrants that don't look like us. And I was wondering, you know, what impact this has on shaping, you know, U.S. policy of immigration. I mean, we we have no policy, like we, and nobody's willing to commit to it. So, what do you think is the way forward here? I mean, we need I, immigrants I, and we hate immigrants. I mean, yeah, how does that work? I mean, I think it's a very difficult question um, to answer because th there is no one answer, right? All of these things are um, our, our failure on this issue is um, we have failures in foreign policy, right? We, we, we prop up countries. Um, we end up devastating their economies. And then when citizens of those countries are looking for other opportunities, then we we seal off the border, right? And say, nope, not our problem, even though we're to blame for a lot of the problems. Um, so I think to get to your question, Susan, is, you know, what I always think about is how do we change the, the tone of the message, right? How do we change the, the tone of the question? Because as soon as you say immigration, right? 
uh, everybody goes into their camps, right? You either, you're, you want change or you absolutely don't want change, you know, for a variety of reasons. So, so how do you change the tone and, and the, uh, the approach to that question where you can get everybody to at least be willing to discuss it uh, logically and rationally versus getting very emotional and uh, visceral uh, about their reactions? Um, so I think, you know, this goes to the bigger question of us as a society, right, as people, you know, what, what do we want? Uh, do we want to be um, human beings that support others, right, and, and give people the opportunity to lift themselves out of horrible situations? Or are we going to continue to be um, publicly preach one thing, right, preach uh, our support and uh, our belief in, in certain ideals, but in reality, uh, you know, we don't do anything to support those ideals. Uh, it's really, I think it's an issue of messaging. I'm just not sure what the correct approach is, particularly in this day and age when everything is so um, supercharged, right? Everybody's so hyper sensitive about um, these types of issues. Um, I mean, I think back to last night, I was watching parts of the State of the Union. I mean, I never thought I would see that in my lifetime, you know, the heckling and, and rolling of the eyes. And, and it's just, it really is, um, I think that's just the way it is now. And how do we stem the tide, right? How do we incrementally try to make some type of change to that? Uh, it, it's a question, I, I think it's messaging, it has to be, you know, because you're never going to convince the other side uh, that your position is 100% correct, right? What you can hope to do is get them to understand why you believe um, that our system is broken uh, and why you believe it has to change. Um, and that's going to take concessions, right? You're not going to get everything you want out of the box. Um, there's going to have to be uh, a little give and a little take. Um, and I think that that's what that's what has to happen. It has to be incremental. It has to be incremental. I love that you brought up the State of the Union, Emmer, because clearly, I mean, I watched it and I, I was yelling at my TV at some points, clapping certainly mm -hmm. at times. Um, and I feel the same way. For me, it was a bit despondent to see uh, elected representatives heckling the president, whether or not they agree with him. Um, and something that really has occurred to me lately, and in particular, watching the State of the Union and certain folks react to it, was that really, I think some of the immigration issues we have in this country, or many of them, there's just the undercurrent of um, racism and ignorance. Um, folks don't understand and they hate blindly, or they've been taught to hate. And so it's almost occurred to me, just like you're talking about messaging, that in some ways, um, which is unfortunate, it needs to be sort of a resource discussion. It's almost like you need to talk about immigration outside of the, the people. Um, and talk about it in terms of the resources that we have in this country um, and how we work with those resources and realistically what's occurring to say, not to say, uh, well, we'll keep people out, like people are going to safely and unsafely try and get to this country, whether they're escaping or seeking or whatever that looks like, um, and how do we manage it appropriately. And I think what you're saying in terms of messaging is really critical. I think it's important at the policy level, which is what you're answering, but I think it's also important at the education level, which is 
if we think about these young people like Kendall and Esther and think, well, they're kind of our future. Like if we're going to change immigration policy, we're going to have to rely on younger people to push this forward. Um, is there any advice that you could give in terms of just like in a layperson, if you're speaking to someone on the subject of immigration and you're talking about these issues, um, you know, oftentimes people are not necessarily like super well-versed in policy. And so their go-to is those, you know, quick hit lines of like, we don't want people to live here for free or steal our healthcare and all the other sort of uh, ignorant statements that belie how difficult it is to truly immigrate to this country and how difficult it is to avail yourself of different benefits. So is there any advice when you talk to people about immigration, just lay people, if we want our listeners to start this conversation outside of here, how can they begin these conversations? Do you have any suggestions or how do you talk to people about immigration in a way that you think might be productive? versus heckling and screaming. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, to me, it always comes back to, you know, the person sitting across from you. It doesn't matter where they're from. I mean, they're a human being just like you, right? They're a person. They, they have families. Uh, they want to take care of their families. Um, they want to make sure that their children have the best opportunities possible, um, which is, I think, consistent with um, what everybody wants. Right. Uh, when, when you hear this um, rhetoric about they're taking our jobs and, and you know, OK, let, let, let's look at what that means. Right. Why taking your jobs? Why are you concerned? Well, you're concerned for your family's well-being. Right. You're, you're concerned uh, for your uh, children's well-being. Um, that I think that concern is universal. Right. It doesn't matter what part of the world you're in. Uh, what color your skin is, what your religion is, uh, what language you speak. Uh, that's a universal theme. And I always try to think about it and, and discuss it in those terms. Um, you know, if, if I gave you, um, you know, a list of facts about an individual, just blind, you don't know what the person looks like, you don't know what color their skin is, um, you know, nine times out of 10, you're going to say that that's me, <laughs> right? Um, um, I'm working to support my family. I'm stressed at work. I'm trying to do the best I can. And, and you know, if I can take a vacation with my family every once in a while, that's that's a home run. Um, these are all, I think, uh, across the board. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. Uh, and I find that when I engage people um, at, in that way, um, you know, they, they let their guard down just a little bit. Not, not all the way, uh, just enough where uh, in that moment, at least, uh, they can understand uh, and even possibly be empathetic uh, to the plight, uh, you know, of, of these individuals that we see on the six o'clock news every night and, and just shake our heads and go, what are we doing as a country, right? It just, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so I, I'm a firm believer in that, uh, because once you get once you can connect with that other person, then the policy questions become much easier to discuss and um, and hopefully much easier to address. I think that's a really great point. Uh, my dad actually was born in the Philippines and he moved to the United States right when he was a few months old and he had a bunch of several other siblings moving with him too. So I was wondering, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that immigrant parents face when raising children in a brand new culture? I can tell you just going back to my own experience um, and speaking to my parents, you know, uh, 
as I got wiser and older in life, um, you know, the, the biggest hurdle for them was being able to acclimate and assimilate to the culture here. Simultaneously trying to make sure that we didn't lose, my sister and I didn't lose our connection with their culture, right? The culture back in Turkey. Uh, so th there was always that tension because obviously we, you know, being born here and raised here and our perspective was different. And at that age, you know, I certainly didn't have an appreciation uh, for what my parents had gone through to come here and, and do what they did. Uh, so I think, it, once again, communication, right? Uh, articulating that, you know, to your children, right? Saying, listen, here's our perspective, right? We grew up in a different world in a different environment. We recognize that your perspective is different because you're growing up in a completely different environment. Uh, and I, I think that's critical uh, because what, what I, I always saw uh, with my sibling and I, uh, especially at a younger age, we were, we were very resistant to accept our parents. Uh, like, oh, our parents, they speak funny, their accents. And, and, you know, every time there was an event at school, we were like embarrassed because our parents didn't speak like other parents. You know, my mom would make lunch for us and the lunch was totally different than what everybody else <laughs> at the lunch table was eating. Uh, so, I mean, these little things created all these stress, stressful moments <laughs> for us as kids in school. And uh, I never forget those moments because in hindsight, um, you know, those moments are a part of who we are. Right. And and. Uh, as much as we resisted our parents and, and their culture, um, it's who we are. And that's a great thing. Uh, that's an exceptional thing. And I, and I think uh, my only regret is I didn't recognize it sooner, right? It took, you know, just like everything else in life, it takes time and, and uh, perspective. Uh, but I, I think communication, that would be my number one piece of advice, uh, talking to your parents and, and encouraging the parents to articulate their feelings because I know my parents were stressed as well uh you know letting the kids know about that the children know um very important very important uh, to get on the same page sooner than later so I I actually I in my thinking about this I see unfortunately in the news is either the right you know on the right side is like anti-immigration and the left is like you know like love and kisses and inclusion and I believe that most people in America live in the center. Um, and the same uncivil behavior, you know, that we see present when the president is making his state of the union is even more like amplified at the borders where people are trying to get here. And for um, very important reasons, you know, that life in their home countries is just unlivable. And the way that we treat them by putting them in cages, by separating them, by we, what we do is we dehumanize them. And by dehumanizing them, we give permission for this to happen and, and, and to go on. And to me, it goes back historically, you know, with slavery, if you treat people like their property, then you don't have to treat them like humans. You don't have to be civil. And I guess what I'm thinking is, is like, 
what is the center lane? Like most of us are decent civil people and yet the, the screaming and yelling is so uncivil that it gives a feeling like that's where we are, who we are. And I don't believe that we are. So I wondered like, you know, like how do we start a conversation with most of us who believe that people have the right to come here, to settle here, to make lives here, to be educated, to educate their children. I mean, we need policies. Um, so I was wondering, like, what's the center lane for you? For me, the center lane. Um, and, this, and there's I, no magic. Like, yeah, this, I mean, this yeah. is so hypothetical yeah. because we're so um, far away from it. But it's like, where do we begin, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, fundamentally, it comes back to how do you, you know, the ideals that we aspire for, right? And those kind of, um, those doctrines that, you know, the founding fathers uh, impressed uh, upon us, right? Through their do various documents. Um, you know, I think what happens is the loudest voices in the room very often uh, drown out uh, the majority. And, you know, we live in an age where, um, it's easier to get attention by being obnoxious and 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 dishonest than being honest and, and talking about hard issues. And I think it just comes back to communication, right? How do we message um, to the public in general um, that you know we need to address <clears throat> this issue with immigration more effectively, right? And I'm not saying that a complete overhaul uh, is uh, feasible because I don't think it is right out of the box, uh, but it has to be incremental. And, and you know, if you look at the polling numbers over the years uh, and depending on which polls you look at, you know, a majority of us, you know, want some type of practical common sense solution. Um, but, you know, our institutions, particularly our political institutions, are structured in such a way that there's no incentive for any elected official or most elected officials uh, to really compromise and, and uh, be pragmatic and, and middle of the road, if you will, because, you know, all the, all the districts have been gerrymandered where, you know, uh, you have the extreme most elements uh, that are getting elected. Uh, there's no consequences for being extreme, right? So even if the moderates wanted to make a difference, uh, it's very difficult uh, given the way everything has been kind of mapped out. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it starts with, you know, conversations and recognizing that, that there's going to be concessions, right? We're going to have to give something up that we necessarily don't want to give up. Uh, to get something in return uh and as long as we're willing to discuss that and and think about viable alternatives related to that i, I think we can make some progress uh and, and that might be you know uh, something as basic as you know that there's a handful of senators in this country that kind of control <laughs> uh you know 15 or 20 states right senators from those states really have a, a outsized influence uh, so, you know, what do those senators need for their constituents? What do they want? Um, you know, there has to be, if people really just truly sat down and wanted to get this done, uh, there's a viable option, right? Uh, what can you give them in return for their support uh, for some meaningful 
legislation related to immigration. Uh, it's just, it, it becomes so difficult, I think, uh, to get to that point because the, the parties are so, um, we become tribal, right? That there's no, there's, you know, I'm not going to negotiate. I'm not going to acquiesce because I have no incentive to do that. Uh, and uh, it, to get past that, I, I think that there has to be a, a willingness to be genuinely bipartisan, uh, which is very hard, which is very hard. It's, it's, it's a difficult topic to, you yeah. know, broach, and we really appreciate, you know, you, you know, discussing this with us because it's, there's so much to it, you know, yeah. historically, there's so much to it, and what's going on now, and the you know partisanship and the polarization of people. Um, it's hard to hear those civil conversations. It's hard to hear you know the needs of you know people in this country and you know the discussion of white supremacy and the rise of it and how it's impacting all of us. Um, you know, just in terms of our lives, in terms of immigration, in terms of education, in terms you know in every strata of society. Um, but I think, you know, we're here to have these uncomfortable conversations mm -hmm. and, you know, I think this is really important and I'm hoping that the listeners are hearing us and, you know, we'll start a conversation, whether it's with their friends, you know, whether it's with their families, um, you know, whether it's with their colleagues, but we need to, on a very personal level, I think, um, begin these conversations and not shut them down because they're uncomfortable or they're difficult. Yeah, and, and I, a lot of these um, issues, you know, they do start at, at this level, right? Like it takes mm -hmm. conversations with friends, it takes conversations with neighbors, it takes conversations with your coworkers, uh, because, you know, ultimately, you know, it, it's, we're the ones who have the voice, right? If we, if we truly want to change, uh, we could go to the ballot box and, and, and make that change happen. It's just, it's so hard, I think, for people to take that step um, to engage in these difficult conversations uh, with uh, people in their everyday lives, right? Because, no, you know, nobody's ever going to say I'm a bigot. Nobody's ever going to say I'm a racist, right? That they're going to. That's right. Yeah. Everybody's in their own echo chamber and, and I'm right. And, and everybody outside of this bubble is wrong. Um, but, you know. It, all it takes is one domino, right? And then once it kind of gets going, uh, I think exponentially, uh, there's a lot of potential there. And, um, you know, it, it's a tough battle and we're going to lose more than we win. Uh, that's the reality. Uh, but I think as long as we keep keep to the path, right, and keep to the message and, and, and not let ourselves get uh, frustrated to the point where we kind of throw up our hands, that um, there's potential there. Uh, it's just, it's going to take a long time and, and you know, we're going to have one step forward and, and multiple steps back, <laughs> but that's just the way it is, unfortunately. Uh, it's just the nature of the, the beast. And um, Well, you have four allies here and hopefully most of our listeners yes. are nice too willing yeah. to yeah. thing that's very meaningful to all of us for personal and not so personal reasons. Yeah. And as a teenager, I hope that my peers as well are starting these conversations because we're, they're so important. And especially because my school is, you know, full of diverse backgrounds and a lot of the parents are immigrants as well. So 
I think having this conversation is really great. And especially thanking you for being on here and sharing your experience as well. And, you know, working as an immigration lawyer, you're doing amazing work. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, Esther. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And obviously we want our listeners to think about these topics and feel free to weigh in. We'd love to hear from you. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure.